0: 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. You know, I decided to slow way down um, for this. Didn't really, this wasn't part of the original plan. But I've decided to spend three weeks on chapter 3 of 2 Timothy and talk about this idea of godliness. The word godliness is used here. Godly life, uh, appearance of godliness. What is godliness? Maybe you've been around church uh, for a little while and you've been you've heard that word before. That's a godly person, or she's so godly, or he's so godly, and you wonder like what does that mean? How does one get uh, that that label? And what does it mean to have that kind of God oriented? Life And so, I want to spend three weeks on this. This is week number two. Last week, we, we looked um, at the first part of the chapter and really talking about this negative image of what godliness is not. An imposter godliness. And we listed out the 19 sins there in verses 1-5 through 5, um, that talk about this, this life that has the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And we said that the, the power of impostor godliness, the way that, that you can know if you're an imposter or not is that are you in hiding? Because these people have the appearance of godliness and yet there is something underneath. And so the power of imposter godliness is in hiding. But today we want to talk more positively. We want to say, well, what is that? Then what is the, what is the other side of that? You, however, in verse 10, the big change comes in this chapter. He says, there's something different that I have for you, people of God. And um, so let's read these words together. We're going to begin by reading the first five verses that we did last week and then jump down to verse 10. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is the word of the Lord. It's probably been about 15 years or so since I um, saw this movie. On the surface, a very uh, silly kind of movie, but actually it's kind of a profound film. Um, and it stuck with me, the, the plot line of it. it. The movie is Stranger Than Fiction. I don't know if you've seen this before. It's got Will Ferrell, um, so you know that it's a serious, uh, dramatic movie. Um, no, it's a, it's a comic movie. Um, Will, Will Ferrell plays the, the role of Harold Crick, and Harold uh, lives a, a stagnant life of repetition. His life is uh, completely governed by his wristwatch, Where he has set times for everything that he does during the day. He has no freedom. Um, He completely follows his routine every morning. He gets up and brushes each tooth 76 times, uh, 38 times side to side, 38 times up and down uh, throughout his whole mouth. He goes into his work, which is at the Internal Revenue Service. which is a perfect you know, picture of, of his life, right, you might say. Um, he files seven, on average 7.134 tax files a day. He takes a 4.3-minute coffee break every single day. And his life is filled with this kind of OCD, repetition, um, stagnation. But he has hidden dreams, and there's times where his mind wanders, and he wonders what kind of life he's living and so he thinks about these things, but other than that, he's basically a sad character. He lives a life of solitude. And we're, we're told all this at the beginning of the movie. There's a narrator uh, that is telling us everything about Harold Crick. So if you were to insert yourself into that story, and if you were to tell Harold Crick like how he should change his life, what would you say that Harold needed the most? Does, does he need to be told that his life is bad? Would that be enough for him to change? Do you think that he could somehow muster up some willpower to overcome some of these patterns that he's, he's had in his life? And like, what would you say is the thing that Harold needs the most? Because clearly he needs a change. Well, of course, the movie wouldn't be any good if there wasn't any change. And on Wednesday, we're told in the movie, everything changed for Harold. And uh, what happened was the narrator was heard by Harold. He hears the narrator speak while he's brushing his teeth and doing the same repetition. He hears this British woman's voice and she says, while others dreamed, Harold only counted brushstrokes. And he hears her say that. And then he puts his toothbrush down. He said, "Who says that?" You know, and there's a comic scene that follows where he's trying to figure out where this voice is coming from. But over the course of the movie, he realizes that his life is being written by an author, and this author is telling his story. And when he hears that narrator, he hears somebody speaking over his life. And it's then, actually, it's then that he begins to change his life when he hears the voice of the narrator. And he notices his life. And he's able to see what his life is about. That's when he begins to change. He begins to loosen up. He ditches the wristwatch. He falls in love. He learns how to play the guitar. All the things that he's wanted to do, he does because he has somebody paying attention to his life and helping him pay attention to his own life. It changes him all the way to the point of him accepting his own death. The power to change his life was found in watching his life, in other words, watching the unfolding transformation. Now, while we could talk about whether people need to live up always into their hopes and dreams and whether playing guitar is, you know, is the ultimate in life or that kind of thing, that's one thing, but I think there's something powerful in that approach that is rings true with our own spiritual search. It rings true with my spiritual search. Something I've been burdened about for years is how, how do we actually change? I mean, how do we grow? How do we become godly in the words of Second Timothy? How do we change? How does one change? And it seems not so obvious from the Scriptures. Because when you look at the Scriptures, it tells us kind of some things that seem like they're conflicting at times. That, you know, um, that really change comes from God within us. That, that it's God's power that changes us. And, um, but then we also know that our intention is somehow wrapped into that. Maybe we need to read the Scriptures more. Maybe we need to pray more. Maybe we need to act more godly. And then you think, well, but it's not legalism, right? We don't need to just do things. That's not going to change us. It has to come from the inside. And so there seems to be a tension here. But I think that we gain a lot and it certainly is true in my own life when I stopped trying to do better and just try to rise up above uh, whatever it is that I was facing spiritually and instead to watch to watch what God is doing within me to watch how he is transforming me and I want to talk about that today how we can watch that. Uh, in real time because the power of real godliness is watching gospel transformation in your life the power of real godliness is watching gospel transformation in your life it's the watching of what God is doing in and through you that you've come to see that you are a different person you are changed it's in seeing his work I want to be very clear this transformation is a gospel transformation what I mean by that is this. This is the good news that Jesus actually changes us from the inside out. He is the one who changes us. It's not us that, that even, even in our watching, we, we're not the ones who bring the transformation. It's Christ within us. And of course, we have different transformations that we go through. And we have times where we're more in line with the Scripture and more following after God in prayer and those types of things. But the Scripture tells us that even those desires they come from God Himself. He gives us the power for transformation. That is the power that the imposters that we talked about last week deny. Right? We look at verse five again, where he says, uh, "the the thing that is so bad about the imposters is that they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power." Denying its power. What is that power? Don't you just wish that he had just defined it right after that? Like, what are they denying? What is that? Well, he doesn't have to define it here. He does so elsewhere. This power is the Gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power. The, the gospel, the good news that Jesus has rescued us without reference to, to ourselves, without our need, you know, asking him, without, he comes into our lives and he redeems us. And so Paul says the power to change comes not from what we might do, but from what God does within us. It's Christ within us. The scripture says it is finished. You have received everything you need for life and godliness, 2 Peter tells us. You have been justified, Paul tells us in Romans. You have been sanctified. And so, godliness has less to do with us ascending a mountain and us accomplishing things and having the willpower to become a certain way and has everything to do with discovering and unlocking what God is doing within us. It comes... From the gospel. And yet, when the gospel is in us, when we have believed in Christ Jesus, then we are changed and we begin a process of change towards godliness. And that is a process that we can watch. And real godliness, I think, is noticed. It is watched in real time. So a couple of things that we can watch. A couple of meters. A couple of Uh, dashboards that we can watch for our own transformation. Two things I want to mention this morning. We can watch the evidence of fruit and our experience of suffering. The evidence of fruit and the experience of suffering. So first, we can watch the evidence of fruit in our lives. This is what Paul draws our attention to when he gives that big contrast in verse 10. You, however... You're not going to be like these imposters. You're not not just going to have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. You have the power of the Gospel. You have received Christ. And so here is how you can now model your life. And He gives Himself as the model. You, however, have followed My teaching, My conduct, My aim in life, My faith, My patience, My love, My steadfastness the list there he says you can watch me so that you can learn how to watch your own lives that is his model I mean Paul often tells people to watch him to follow him to follow him as he follows Christ Was Paul a narcissist? You know, just like he wanted everybody to follow him. No, he was an equipper, right? He knew that he had received everything from Christ. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 11, follow my example as I follow Christ. I'm trying to follow Christ. And so he's watching himself and he's encouraging them to watch Him so that they can watch their own lives. He says, you have followed my teaching. The word there is a technical term for a disciple. Is someone who follows after someone, not just you watch from a distance, but you are are studying My pattern. And what He says is, if you follow Me, then you'll see fruit. And you will see this fruit in your life if you continue in godliness. What are the types of things that you should watch? First, trustworthiness. That's the first two descriptors there. Having followed My teaching, And my conduct. Why does Paul begin with his teaching and his conduct? Or the word conduct there could just be my way of life. The way that I was among you. Why does he begin with those two things? Well, that pair of two two things is important to Paul. Because he makes this point in a number of his books, my conduct lines up with my teaching. In fact, in the first book of Timothy... That's exactly what he tells Timothy. He says, "Keep a close watch on your life and on your teaching." Those two things, those are the things, and you hear it at every single ordination sermon of every pastor you've, you've ever been to. Keep a close watch on your teaching, but keep a close watch on your life as well. They're both important. Why? Because together, trustworthiness, that's what trustworthiness is, is that your teaching and your life lines up. And Paul says, that is important. It's the most important thing as an evidence of fruit. And of course, it contrasts Him with the imposters. The imposters have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. So they have the, 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 an outward conduct, but they, they're teaching the wrong things. And ultimately, they're living the wrong way. And when there isn't that, that uh, synergy, that consistency... Then you have something that is untrustworthy. But he says a gospel fruit is that increasingly your life will look consistent. What you believe and how you live lines up. Trustworthiness. Secondly, the the second fruit that he watches is his purpose my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. My aim in life. What was Paul's aim? in life his aim was christ and christ crucified let me read to you philippians chapter 3 verse 13 says this one thing i do one thing i do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead i press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of god in christ jesus Paul's aim in life was the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, and that one thing pushed him on and on through lots of different hardships. He had an aim in his life. I remember reading um, a uh, peanuts cartoon. Um, I guess all my references here are, are today are very old. Um, a movie that's 15 years old, and who, who reads uh, Snoopy cartoons anymore. You should. So much wisdom there. But there's a whole series of, of Snoopy cartoons where, about Snoopy the dog who wouldn't chase the sticks. Um, I don't remember, know if you remember these, but uh, Snoopy would never play fetch. And so there's a series of cartoons where he, uh, you know, for different reasons on different days, he won't fetch the stick. And um, there was one where Linus, one of the characters, uh, throws the stick and Snoopy just looks at him and Linus says, you won't do it, huh? And Snoopy says, nope. And then you see him later laying on his doghouse, and he's got a thought bubble above his head, and he said, I want people to have more to say about me after I'm gone then. He was a nice guy. He chased sticks. <laughs> he was a nice guy. He chased sticks. He, Snoopy had a bigger purpose, right? He had a bigger aim in his life. If I do this, then it'll look like that's all that I'm doing. Paul has the highest aim in his life. Nobody would accuse Paul of just chasing sticks or doing things that are seemingly unimportant. He gives his life to the ultimate, to Christ. Now, Paul was unique. We follow Paul. We don't follow exactly what he does. Not everybody in here is called to plant dozens of churches and to spread the gospel in Asia and everywhere. Like That's not the call for everybody, but we're all called to have a Christ-centered aim in life. And that's something that we can watch. We can watch our trustworthiness, how our conduct and, our, and what we believe is lining up. We can watch our purpose in life as well. The third thing is virtues. Virtue. And there's four of those that he lists here. Not only my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, but my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. All of these virtues have to do with endurance and sets him up for talking about what he talks about next, which is suffering. And Paul is fond of these types of lists. Another one is faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. He bunches together these virtues which have the ultimate picture of a transformed inner life, of an endurance till the end of a true faith. And Paul says, you can watch that. Are we watching these things in our lives? If godliness comes from watching Gospel transformation, if Christ is in us, if we believe the Gospel, then it should result in the evidence of fruit in our lives. Do we have this kind of fruit? We can begin by asking ourselves a series of very challenging questions. Does my conduct line up with what I say I believe? Where does it differ? If I say I believe that this is the most important thing, do I live like this is the most important thing? Am I living like my purpose is to glorify God? Do I have an aim in life that is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Do I have that or is my aim something different? Is God included in my aim towards something else? That's a challenging question. How am I responding to challenging circumstances? Is there a faith? Is there a patience? Is there an endurance that Paul says should be there? Or, how easily do I give up? These are things that we can watch. Please note, to watch yourself is not to condemn yourself. If you condemn yourself, meaning you see that you don't line up and you think that God would never then have me, then you are doing something that Jesus Himself doesn't do with you. The gospel is, of course. We talked about this last week. all those 19 things about the imposters do are all things that we have done. To watch yourself is not to condemn yourself. The gospel tells us that even though we are lacking, God in Christ fills up what we lack. He is our righteousness, our godliness. And so We can watch ourselves with the same grace that He has already extended to us. We watch, but we don't condemn because Christ has not condemned. But still, we watch. Where is the evidence of this? Where is the evidence of fruit in my life? What is my aim? What what are the virtues that are being cultivated? Let's watch those things, but not in a way that condemns us. In a way that drives us towards godliness. Evidence of fruit, the second thing that we watch, the second dashboard that we can monitor is our experience of suffering. Paul lived an example of suffering. <clears throat> you see that in verse 11 my persecutions and my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. He's talking about a very specific story here, those three places that he mentions Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. You can read the whole story, it's in Acts chapter 13 and 14. It's a longer story. He summarizes a story of great escape. It was kind of like a catch me if you can kind of story where Paul escapes from people that are trying to kill him. And so he's in. Antioch. And he's preaching and the crowds are, are coming to faith. He's telling the whole story of redemption. The people are coming to faith, but there's some Jews who come in who stir up the crowd against Paul and he has to leave. He gets driven from Antioch and he heads right over to Iconium that's right next door. He heads into another town and then again, he preaches the Gospel and it's success and many Gentiles come to faith, but it, it upsets the Jews again. And so they have a plot to kill Paul and Barnabas, who's traveling with him, and they escape from this plot. They hear about the plot, and they escape before it, ha- it happens, and they escape to Lystra. It's the next town over again, and here they, they heal somebody. In Lystra, they, they heal somebody, and that's where the people believe that Paul and Barnabas are Greek gods. Where they say you're you're Zeus and you're Hermes and we they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas and so that's the kind of success they're having is that people are very they're very popular they're too popular they have to tell them don't worship us but at the same time the people that have come from uh, Antioch and then Iconium they they catch up it says they travel the towns over and they try to kill them in Lystra and at this time they don't escape. At least at first. Paul is stoned. He's taken out into the city and stoned, but he's not dead. And God heals him immediately. And then he, the next day, he moves on. Guess who was in Lystra watching this happen? Timothy. Timothy was there. So that's why he says, you, you know, you followed. You followed my persecutions and my suffering. You saw what happened to me in all of these places and he says God rescued me the Lord rescued me from these things later in the next chapter he's going to talk about his view of of suffering and how it ends he says that that the Lord rescued me he will continue to rescue me until he delivers me into his kingdom That is Paul's understanding of suffering, is that God always rescues His people, whether it's in this life or the next. The ultimate rescue, of course, is to be with the Lord forever. Paul had that perspective. He said to to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And so, Paul experiences suffering, but he also experiences this. God always rescues His people, whether in this life or the next. The Christian, in other words, cannot lose. That's why the Scriptures tell us that we are more than conquerors if we're in Christ Jesus. We're more than conquerors. What, how can you be more than a conqueror? Well, a conqueror is somebody who wins. But a more than a conqueror is someone who can't lose. The experience of suffering. God will either rescue us now or He'll, he'll rescue us later. As Martin Luther said, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. There is no way that we can lose. And so, we can watch our suffering like Paul watched his. Hey, I was at all these places, and the Lord rescued me. And you know what? If, if, if he had been killed and been taken home there, then the Lord would have rescued him there too. He can't lose. So we watch our suffering. And then he has this experience of suffering, but then he teaches us something about suffering as well in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, there you have it. What is real godliness? In part, It involves a level of persecution and suffering. This is something that Jesus said in John 15. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. This is part of the process. Christians do experience suffering. Now, we don't need to be embarrassed about our suffering. This is what Christians often do. Either they're embarrassed about their personal suffering, or they're embarrassed about their lack of persecution on the outside. Persecution looks different in different eras of the church, and it is certainly the case um, that we could be persecuted bodily and with our very lives. That if you believe, if we believe we are beyond that, then you're not a student of history. And how it cycles back through. And how nations rise and fall. And how the Gospel comes into favor and then it comes into disfavor. This is the cycle of nations. We're part of it. However, there are other kinds of suffering, other kinds of persecution that even we experience. St. Augustine said this, even when no one molests or vexes their body, for they suffer this persecution, not in their bodies, but in their hearts. The things that we suffer internally because of what Christ, the name of Christ that we bear. This can include things like this being ignored. There's plenty of opportunity for that kind of persecution right now. Being ignored, being mocked, being patronized, being misunderstood, being disliked, or even hated. These are things that we are called. To watch and again we can ask ourselves some very hard questions and again we can know that question asking is not the same thing as condemnation if we aren't experiencing any of these things we might ask ourselves if we are never mocked we're never misunderstood never disliked well let's go back to the fruit that paul has just said is my life trustworthy (laughs) Does my conduct and my belief line up? Do I have the right aim in life? Do I have all these virtues? Because Paul says, if you have those things, if your life is about Christ, then you will be persecuted. So in a sense, an avoidance of suffering and persecution is an avoidance of godliness. Paul says they go together by necessity. Some level of suffering and persecution. These two things go together. Do we ever have them in our lives? Again, we can ask. We can watch without condemnation. Christ has redeemed us. If we put our faith in Him, then we have that security. But as we want to grow in godliness, it means that in many ways, living more openly as a Christian will invite these kinds of things in our lives. I want to close today just by offering a couple of, uh, of tools. And um, these are things that, that have been my experience um, as I've tried to watch my own godliness. And I, I want to recommend these, not as this is exactly what Paul says, and this is exactly how you have to do these in your life. We know that. This is a process of transformation. There's individual journeys within the room. But I wanted to give a couple of examples of how we watch gospel transformation. How do we do that? If real godliness is rooted in us seeing what God is doing in us and really seeing it and asking ourselves those types of hard questions and watching how He changes us, if that's the case, then how do we do that? I want to just suggest a couple of practices. The first one that has been the most important for me is the practice of examining prayer. Examining prayer. What is examining prayer? Examining prayer is a prayer that reviews your day in Christ. When you think about your day from start to finish, you can do it in the morning and just do the previous day, or you can do it in the evening and do that day. It doesn't matter. You review how was my life looked today? What are the moments... And, and as you review that, you see that God has been at work. It's so easy to live your life unexamined, isn't it? It's so easy to not watch what God is doing, but He is doing things all the time. And by watching those things, you realize that He's making you more godly. He's changing you. Your desires are different than maybe they were six months ago. You have changed. And you can see that. You can watch it. Examining prayer. How do you do it? Well, There's lots of examples out there. It was begun by a guy named St. Ignatius. You don't have to follow his pattern. The one that I have recommended before, some of you have heard me say this before, uh, is to pray the three C's. It's easy to remember. The three C's are, what can I celebrate? What do I need to confess? And thirdly, what am I carrying? What do I need to celebrate? God is doing good things in my life. There's joy. There are, there are no- things to notice that are good. What do I celebrate? What do I confess? Over the last 24 hours, I have thought things. I have done things. I have said things that are not in His will. Let's go ahead and confess those. Keep short accounts. What am I carrying? This is the one where increasingly I spend the most time. What am I carrying? Who's that relationship that just... Is hurting me, or that family member, or that situation at work, or my desires for a new career, or whatever it may be. What am I carrying? The scriptures say that we can cast our cares on the Lord, for he cares for us. And all these things, it's not a methodology that we find in scripture. It's okay if you do it differently, there are no rules here. What I'm saying is, how do you examine your life? It's just one way. Examining prayer. The second one is journaling prayer. And that is where you, in some form or another, take something specific that happened and you pray it by writing it down into a journal. Maybe it's a moment in the day where you experienced anger at your spouse and you just want to write about that anger. Maybe somebody said something to you that was hurtful and you just write it down. Journaling prayer I think is very helpful. You can write something about your day or your life in general, and you can write it in the form of a letter to the Lord. And then, using the Scripture and what you know of God's character, you can formulate what a response would be from Him. It's a faithful thing to do. It's a beautiful thing to do. To know, no, I do not condemn you. And use Scripture verses back to yourself. Reassuring yourself. It's a way of talking to yourself in the Gospel. God's response is always truthful and loving. It's always challenging and also embracing. These are just a couple of the practices. These are the ones that I use the most to live an examined life, to watch what God is doing. God is at work. What is godliness if not seeing that He is at work within us? It's not some kind of mountain that we have to climb and overcome so that we can check a box so that other people think a certain way about us. It is a process where we are watching what God is doing. His work within us. It's gospel transformation. It's not condemnation. If you are in Christ, you are secure in His love. And yet, He is calling you to say, what is the fruit? And where is the suffering? And how can I notice those two things? Because those two things will be, give us the most clear picture of the way that God is working within our own lives. Let's pray.